0: Good morning. There we go. Let me try it again. Good morning. It's good to be with you today. Uh, my name is David Swanson. I'm the pastor of New Community Covenant Church in Bronzeville. Uh, your partner in ministry, your daughter church, your sister church, however you want to describe our relationship. It is very, very good to be with you this morning. Uh, We're going to be in John chapter 12, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. I'll I'll read it for us in a moment. Uh, But first, I do want to simply bring greetings from our church. Uh, It is good to be with you. It's good to know what God is doing here, among you, through you, with you uh, during this season. Um, Seasons of transition are interesting, aren't they? Uh, uh, Interesting can be quoted in a lot of different directions. Um n- nobody nobody wants to be in seasons of transition. Nobody goes looking for seasons of transition. Um, and, and often when we find ourselves in one of those times of transition, we 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 find ourselves just wanting to get through it, wanting to be on the other side of the transition. Being in between is not comfortable. Uh, being in between is not secure. And so At least if you're like me, if you are in a season of in-betweenness, in transition, it can be easy to think, okay, Lord, just get me through this. Just get me to the other side of this. Just bring me through this. And what I would, would encourage you with this morning is to be aware of the opportunity that transition brings. God always works during seasons of transition. God always is working when God's bringing us from one place to another place. God is interested in the process. God is interested in the journey. God is interested in using our times of wilderness and in between us to make us more like himself. And so as you are in a season of transition, please don't miss what it is that God is doing for you right now. Please don't lean back and say, well, well, I will press in once we make it over this, once we make it through this. Once we have uh, the pastor that God had, that, that's that's going to be missing something really, really good that God has for you. Now, I say this because our church is in a season of transition as well right now. And some of you know about this, and it was alluded to earlier. We, we find ourselves searching for a permanent facility now. I want to make a confession to you, that I had a vision for the facility that God was going to give to our church. It was uh, it was a, a building that would host our church and our nonprofit. We could use it for the nonprofit during the week, and we could use it for the church on Sundays. And it would not be nearly this beautiful, or large, or spectacular. It was going to be a kind of multi-purpose space. It was going to be very utilitarian in nature. And we knew how much budget that we had for it. We knew the square footage that we had. for, And I was very comfortable with the vision that I had for our church. And and then God um, seems to be deciding to do something different so that the space that we are now pursuing is not one facility, it's three facilities. It's a school building, it's a rectory, it's a, it's a sanctuary that would fit a couple of your sanctuaries inside of it. It is much larger and bigger and more expensive than my vision was. Um, and so we find ourselves in a time of transition as well, and, and what I realized is that My vision was not God's vision. My vision was this. God, would you provide a facility for our church and for our nonprofit? And the vision that God seems to be inviting our community into is this. New community, would you be the next generation of caretakers for this entire property, for the good of all of your community? That's a slightly bigger (laughs) vision than I had in mind. So I I, want to say thank you, New Community Logan Square, for, um, from a distance, saying yes to God's vision, uh, for desiring to participate in this vision. I asked Michael Emerson to share last week, uh, not because of your $40,000 gift, though thank you very much for your $40,000 gift. I asked him to share because that gift was given out of your generosity and not, not out of any request from our church. We didn't ask you for that money. You heard about this vision and you, on your own, said we want to be a part of that. That doesn't happen all that often. So last Sunday, before we invited the church to come forward and make their pledges, I invited Michael Emerson up, and then I invited little uh, Toby Chow Tao up. And Toby is, I think, seven years old. And for me, both Toby and New Community Logan Square exemplified this generosity of spirit, where Toby said, well, here's here's my savings. Here's my $3, everything that I saved and this is what I want to give. And then Michael said, well, here's our 40000 and this is what we want to give. And and for us to get to be in this season of transition and to watch God move in this way has been... So, so I want to show you a very short video because about two weeks ago, we got to invite the church into the sanctuary for the first time. Um, and I got to watch as people walked in and one looked at how Messy and dusty and dirty, everything. It's like, the, it's like the, they, they got raptured out of that building, Pastor. Just like it just, it just left everything behind him. And then to look around and start to imagine what, what it is that God might want to do. And so for the first time, we got to pray and worship in that facility. So I just want to give you a little taste uh, of that. <laughs> So I think that we probably need to do that again and invite you all to join us. I think, I think if God continues to open the doors over the next couple of months, would, would you all come down if we did that again? Would you all come down if we did that again? Okay. So pray with us. Uh, pray with us. We have until the end of May. Uh, to, to raise the, the money for the down payment, thanks be to God, of a total of $750,000 that we need for the down payment, we are just $60,000 shy. And that is a massive, massive answer to prayer. And then we need to begin working on pledges for another two-point, I don't need to think about it, million dollars. So, so we are looking for God to, to do that, to help us pass inspections and a lot of other things that need to happen. It continues to be miracle after miracle after miracle that only God can do. So pray with us, and then Lord willing, we'll, we'll find a time to invite you all down, and we will uh, we'll worship in that space together. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8 Uh, It's our tradition at New Community Bronzeville to stand uh, as we read scripture, so I'd invite you, if you're able, to stand for the reading of God's word. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Let's pray. God, you are good. You are good. You are good. You are good. We thank you for the ways that we have tasted and seen of your goodness. Not just when we arrive to the place that we want to be, but in the transition, in the in-between. You are the sustainer, the one who guides us, the one who is a lamp unto our feet and manna enough for every day. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for this word this morning. Thank you for your scripture. Make our hearts tender, curious for what you would say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. From these verses, I'll preach from the title on this fourth Sunday in Lent, People to be Loved. My wife Maggie and I have been enjoying watching Abbott Elementary. Anybody? Okay. Okay. If you you don't know it, Abbott Elementary is a television show about a new teacher at a public school in Philadelphia. Janine Teagues is the optimistic second grade teacher who is discovering her deep passion for education. She loves her students. She sees in these little humans everything that they are capable of becoming. She loves them. And she vacillates between anger and despair when other people treat her students as not fully capable humans, but rather as problems to solve or objects to manage. I am interested in how this show portrays our tendency to reduce people. To objects. In the second episode, Mrs. Teague's colleagues can't understand why it is that she is so committed to replacing a rug in her classroom. It's only at the end of the episode that we learn that one of her students takes a nap on that rug each lunch period, having told his teacher that it is the safest. And most comfortable place available to him. You see, Miss Teagues sees the nuanced and particular humanity in every one of her students. This is what fuels her passion. She humanizes those others have objectified. Just before Jesus enters Jerusalem for his final week before the crucifixion, John records him staying with his very good friends, Martha, Lazarus, and Mary. Over dinner, provoked by an unexpected and extravagant act of worship, Judas, one of the disciples, speaks an accusation dripping with objectification in his mouth. Both Mary and the poor are reduced to generalities, illustrations to serve his own self righteous purposes. Importantly, Jesus defended Mary by refuting Judas' objectification. Jesus refused to let Judas rob Mary. ...or the poor of their humanity. Now, some versions of this interaction is recorded in all four of the Gospels. But, but it's the emphasis on Judas's objectifying tendencies... ...that stood out to me in John's telling of this story. This is what this passage builds to. And Jesus' only words here... ...are in response to Judas. We see two contradictory forces on display here. Judas's impulse to turn people into objects... ...and the power of Jesus' love to push back that objectification... So reflecting Jesus' blunt response, I want to phrase my main point in the form of an exhortation. And it's this. Resist objectification by receiving Christ's humanizing love. Resist objectification by receiving Christ's humanizing love. Love. Because you see, each of us is susceptible to reducing our fellow image bearers of God to objects we use to make a point or meet a need, to make our fellow image bearers something less than human. And each of us, in different ways, have found our God-ordained humanity diminished for someone else's purposes. But in this passage, Judas stands as a blunt warning against this objectifying tendency. And in Jesus... We find a different way of engaging with image bearers of God. Whereas Judas uses his people for his own purposes, Jesus humanizes them. Jesus' love honors the holiness of each image bearer of God. His love calls out the distinct characteristics which make each person a reflection of their creator... His is a humanizing love. And in a world which so often exploits our humanity, this, I believe, is an incredible gift. To see how it is that we can resist our world's objectification by receiving Christ's love, I want to look first at Judas and the warning that he poses us. Then we'll turn to Martha Lazarus and Mary because they each show different ways that we can receive Christ's humanizing love and in so doing withstand the objectifying impulses of our own hearts and of the world in which we live. So let's turn first to Judas and the warning that he poses. Jesus is spending time in Bethany on his way to Jerusalem. His arrest and crucifixion are just ahead of him. It's six days before the Passover. And and his good friends, Mary, Lazarus, Martha, throw a dinner in Jesus' honor. And at this dinner, Mary brings out a bottle of very costly perfume. You hear the word costly and you think one thing. You need to think bigger All of a year's wages to secure this bottle of perfume. This perfume which came from a plant that came all the way from India. In some households would have been passed down generation after generation after generation. A family heirloom. This was how precious and costly and extravagant this act was. And so when she breaks it open and anoints Jesus with it. Judas objects we need to notice that he didn't have to open up his mouth. Judas didn't have to say anything. Nobody asked Judas for his opinion on what Mary was doing. Judas inserts himself into the story in order to make a point. Why? Was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? With these words, Judas signals his own self-righteousness, his own virtue, his own moral purity. I know what should have happened here. And in so doing, he uses both Mary and the poor as objects. To objectify anybody is to treat them as less than human, to treat them as a thing, as an object for your own purposes. Judas does this with Mary. He objectifies her sacrifice, her worship for his own purposes. Judas does the same thing with the poor. Judas is not naming particular people. He's not engaged in specific stories. Instead, he takes a whole group of people, generalizes their experiences, and appropriates their suffering for his own public display of righteousness. Objectification is so common in our world that it can seem normal. It blends itself into the background. And yet, objectification is never normal. It's never inevitable. It always has the force of intention and history behind it. The objectifications that you and I navigate on a daily basis, though they may seem inevitable and normal to us, are not. And so I want to invite you for a moment to stand in Judas' shoes. I know we don't want to identify with Judas in this story, do we? We'd rather be Mary or maybe Martha or Lazarus. But can you for a moment stand in Judas's shoes? Who are you prone to treat as less than fully human? We do this with individuals. The woman who cares for you at the nail salon. The man who takes your dry cleaning. The young person serving you at the restaurant. How is it that you talk about your ideological opponents? How do you describe your political opposites? Anything less then honoring the Imago day in every person we engage with is some form of objectification. Jesus is very serious about this when he says in Matthew chapter 5. If you say to anyone, you fool. A way of diminishing that person's humanity. You will be liable to the hell of fire. Not just individuals, of course. On a societal level, we know and see and breathe objectification. We could go down the list. One simple example. African American citizens in our country are four to five times more likely to be incarcerated than our white people. And none of us in this room would say we are okay with that. None of us in this room would say that that is how things ought to be, and yet most of us in this room sleep just fine every night knowing this is the case. Most of us in this room, myself included, are okay with leaving the narrative and the trajectory of our own lives undisturbed, knowing that this is the case for our neighbor's Stand in Judas's shoes for just a moment and ask yourself, if you can honestly, whom am I prone to treat as less than fully human? But stand in Mary's shoes for a moment as well. How have you experienced the objectifying tendencies so common in our world? How have you found yourself on the receiving end of commodification, dehumanization, bearing the weight of somebody else's stereotypes and prejudices and assumptions? Standing in Mary's shoes for a moment, what would you have hoped for in that instance? As people are looking on, as as you feel perhaps the the, the creeping shame of everybody's gaze on you in that moment, what would you have wanted Jesus' response to be? Because Jesus responds, and his response is simple. It is direct. Leave her alone. Now, just like Judas, Jesus didn't have to speak. Judas is not directly speaking to Jesus. Judas is speaking to hear himself speak. Jesus chooses to respond. Jesus intervenes. And, and I want you to, 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 to picture something here. If, 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 if Mary is here... Worshipping Jesus with her sacrifices. If Judas is here calling attention to his own self-righteousness by directing his objectifying gaze at Mary. Then Jesus' response is to stand between the two. Jesus' response is to absorb the brunt of Judas' objectification. It is to intervene in such a manner that Mary is shielded from the worst of Judas's intentions. Leave her alone. Jesus, Jesus meets Judas's objectifying attacks with a love which cannot help but humanize Mary. He speaks up, and the skeptical among us might wonder: Is Is Jesus doing the same thing that Judas did? Is is Jesus speaking just for the sake of speaking? Is is Jesus speaking to draw attention to himself? Is, Is Jesus speaking on behalf of someone who could speak for themselves? I know there's a couple of skeptics among us. What I want to suggest is different between Jesus and Judas is that Jesus was known by Mary, and Jesus was known by the poor. For Jesus, the poor was not just a category of people, a group of people. It was women and men with stories and faces and histories and conversations. Jesus spoke from a place of relationality with both Mary and those who knew great poverty. Jesus didn't have to defend his credentials with those whom he was speaking. He he would have been defended by them. Oh, we know Jesus. Oh, we've spent time with Jesus. Oh, Jesus has been with me. I've been through some stuff with Jesus. Jesus was with me at my worst, at my most desperate, at my most vulnerable. Jesus was there. So when Jesus speaks up on behalf of Mary, he is speaking alongside of someone who he knows and loves. Someone who trusts him. Jesus humanizes. Jesus engages in a particular form of love. It's not a generalized love. It's a love that names and sees and knows the specifics of somebody's life. We Resist objectification by accepting Christ's very particular humanizing love. So this morning, in this season of Lent, let Judas be both a warning and a comfort to you. Hear the warning first. The Creator God, who made each woman and man in his image, with callings to reflect his character into this world, will not tolerate any word or silence, any action or inaction, which contributes to somebody else's objectification. Let us then confess our objectifying sins this morning. The self-righteousness we've cultivated by being associated with this group instead of with that group. The less than human ways we joke about those who don't share our politics. The invisibility we apply to those who do not share our status. Forgive us. Forgive us, Creator God. For treating the sacred creatures who bear your image as objects to be used for our own purposes. But hear the comfort as well. The same God who made you in his image took on to himself your flesh. The God who called into existence the beautiful particularities of place and culture and language subjected himself to this world's cruel and objectifying ways. Mocked for where he came from. Abandoned for who he was associated with. Appropriated for what he symbolized and demonized for who he claimed to be. Have you known the the ache of invisibility lately? Have you known the sting of mischaracterization, the threat of dehumanization? So has your Savior. It is he who inserts himself between you and your accusers. It is he who absorbs the accusations leveled at you. It is the insulted God, the ridiculed God, the despised God who turns to you in love. It is his atoning death and resurrection which guarantees that there is no betrayal so intimate. No prejudice so entrenched. No slander so accepted by our society. As to steal from you your status as an image bearer of the living God. Thanks be to God. Let Judas then stand as a warning. And Jesus' response to Judas as a comfort. Let's look now at Martha, Lazarus, and Mary. For the ways they show us we can accept Christ's humanizing love. I imagine a Venn diagram of the three of them together and where they overlap this perfect expression of opening ourselves to Christ's love. Martha shows us the way that service helps us to receive the love of Christ. Lazarus the importance of rest in receiving the love of Christ and Mary. Mary the importance of worship. In receiving Christ's love. Martha serves Jesus. Now now some of you remember Martha from Luke chapter 3. When her service became a distraction. She was too busy. That's not the case in this passage. There's nothing negative said about Martha's service. She is just serving as an expression of love for her Savior. How many of you know that service, servanthood, is central to discipleship? Jesus says in John 13, So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Receiving the love of Christ means serving in the manner of Christ. There's a couple in our church who, for years now, once a month, have quietly gone and purchased groceries for a man in our community who can't get out on his own not a lot of people know about this this is just what they do an expression of their loving service for their neighbors some of you tuned in for our joint Christmas Eve worship service we were all supposed to be here in person but it anybody remember how cold it was yeah it was cold so we said Carlton said we don't want to burden the people of God so we'll we'll do a, a live stream but but you know who was here? Carlton was here to serve all of you and There were some sound guys who made their way through the cold to serve all of you. They had places they could be on Christmas Eve, as did most of us. This is what it looks like to receive the love of Christ, is to serve the people of God together. You see, you can't serve objects. You can only serve people. You you can't serve things. You can only serve people. You can't serve things that you've created or formed or are using. You can only truly serve fellow image bearers of the living God. This is why service is so important. Some of you have come and helped with our community garden down in Bronzeville at Jackie Robinson Elementary School. And you come down on a Saturday and you pull some weeds and you harvest some vegetables and you box up the produce. And and you get to, to meet some of our neighbors and to hear what's been happening in their lives throughout the week, and and you find, like we all do, that when you serve people, humans, reflections of their creator, there's something pretty beautiful that happens. You walk away filled up. But I want to add a parenthetical note here because most of us in the room are, are actually okay with serving. You know where we struggle? Being served. Because... To serve is to be kind of in a position of power, isn't it? I'm going to serve you. I have something to offer. Maybe that's resources. Maybe that's time. Maybe that's expertise. But to be served is to confess that I need something, that I'm lacking something, that I'm in need of someone or something in my life. And you see, church is not capitalism. Church is not an engagement or an exchange of goods and services. Church is built on mutual and loving service one to another in the model of Jesus. So I know some of you are like, cool, cool, cool. I, I should serve more. I should do more. Okay, okay. How are you being served? How are you putting yourself in a place where you can confess vulnerably your needs, your desires, your tender places where God is working, and allow a sister or brother to serve you? This is how service is a way we accept the humanizing love of God. Lazarus rests with Jesus text doesn't tell us a lot he's reclining at the table with the rest of the people around the table now again i know we got a few skeptics among us so some of us are like oh that's the patriarchy right there that's what that is you got martha serving mary giving of her resources and the man just kicking it at the table letting other people serve him maybe i'm the only skeptic i don't know maybe i'm the only skeptic it's okay okay but let's just remember lazarus had been dead Like the only thing that we're told about Lazarus in this passage, the only description is dude had been dead not that long ago. So maybe he's just, you know, getting used to being alive again, right? Maybe he needs to rest for a second, learn how to breathe again. Like he's still wiping the stink off, right? Like he just needs to rest for a minute. I actually think that rest It's one of the key ways that we receive Christ's humanizing love for us. I also think it's the one that most of us in this room probably neglect the most. Most of us in this room actually look at as a source of pride. Look how busy I am. Look how tired I am. Let me tell you how little sleep I've gotten. Let me tell you that I don't actually use all the vacation days that my company gives to me. Lazarus rests as a way of receiving the humanizing love of Jesus for him. He's just been resurrected. And there's a bunch of us that need to be resurrected right now. We've been through some stuff. We're going through some stuff, and we need to be resurrected into a place of rest with our Savior. Jesus models, Lazarus models accepting Jesus' invitation to rest. I, I think this is so important in a culture that commodifies us in so many different ways because you can't commodify rest, you can't measure rest. There are no metrics for rest. You don't get to cross anything off your list when you rest. It's just rest, it's just a gift. It's simply being with Jesus. There is no productivity to fill up your adrenaline tank. It's just rest. And if we are to receive the love of Jesus, we need times of rest where we are purged. Of our objectifying impulses. Rest is not isolation. The rest that that, that Lazarus shows us is is more than just self-care. Self-care is important. But but Lazarus is resting with his people. He's resting around the table. He's resting around a, a, a good meal. This is a communal experience of rest. And it's a way that Lazarus is, rece- is being put back together by Jesus. Finally, Mary worships Jesus. Mary worships Jesus. There are more details about Mary than the other two siblings. First, the cost of the nard. It's super expensive. Second, she lets down her hair. In a scandalous act in that culture. She anoints Jesus' feet, not his hair, as in other accounts. A sign of great humility. And then fourthly, as as, as a result of her worship, the entire house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I think you take all of these details together and you have a scene of extravagant worship. Mary doesn't care. Who else is in the room with her? Mary takes what she has, the best of what she has, and she uses it to exalt and glorify Jesus. And Judas is offended by this. And again, we want to make Judas the bad guy. We want to say we're not like Judas. But I'm pretty sure that if we were in the room that day, most of us would have had a Judas reaction to Mary's worship because her worship made no sense from Judas's perspective. And I wonder if it would have made any sense from our perspective. From Judas's perspective, from a dollars and cents perspective, from a commodifying perspective, from an objectifying perspective, from a, from a, from a lowest common denominator perspective, this makes no sense. What would your response to Mary have been? It was illogical. This is a meal to honor Jesus. We have protocol here. We have tradition here. We have customs here. And Mary blows by all of them with her extravagant act of worship. So let's not be too hard on Judas. Let's admit that we might actually be right there with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tisk tisk tisk. But you see, Jesus had resurrected Mary's brother from the dead. Mary was looking across the room and seeing the brother who she had buried. Alive and well and resting with Jesus. Mary understood that the trajectory that she had imagined for her life just a little while ago had been completely interrupted by Jesus. So the thing that seemed illogical and irrational and even offensive to Judas and to me was actually the most logical thing in the world for Mary. It was actually the most natural response to her reality. Breaking open that jar, sacrificing her savings, making a spectacle in that moment was actually the most natural thing to do in response to what Jesus had done for her. Am I talking to anybody besides Carlton this morning? When we know what Jesus has done for us. When we remember what Jesus has done for us. When we can confess honestly. But for the grace of God. If we can testify authentically. This is where Jesus found me. This was the trajectory of my life. This was the direction that I was going in. And then Jesus found me. He resurrected me. He raised me. He breathed life into me. He gave me a hope and a future. If we can do that, and our worship It's not going to be logical anymore. It's not going to be rational anymore. It's not going to make sense to anybody who has not been encountered by Jesus in that way. If our worship makes sense to people who don't know Jesus, if people who have not been resurrected into new life by Jesus can look at what we're doing and go, that makes sense. Oh, yeah, I can get my head around that. Oh, I appreciate what you're doing there. Then we have forgotten what Jesus has done for us. I worry about us, church. This is, this is one of my... This is not my notes, Carlton. This is one of my biggest fears about our church getting into a facility of our own. Because for 13 years... We worshiped in a in a in a in a elementary school. Saint you remember it. No windows. It was like a tomb in there. You remember and they it was like going into a tomb every Sunday. Like, is anybody gonna come join us for worship in this tomb? And then we went to Kennecott, and at least it was light, bright. Oh, but there's there's no air conditioning in Kennecott. Man, when I tell you how hot it gets in there in the summertime, hot. And then a pandemic comes. And we're worshiping on computer screens. And then because we don't have our own facility, when everybody else has come back to their buildings, the park district's not open up to us yet. So we got to worship in a church parking lot for an entire summer with umbrellas for shade. And Jesus taught us how to worship in all those places. God showed us that we don't need anything except one another to worship. Oh, and now you see that sanctuary I showed you? Oh, Jesus, are we going to get dependent on that? Are we going to get respectable in that? Are we going to care more about our reputation in that space than in the testimonies of your salvation in our lives that allow us to worship you in an extravagant way? I worry, I worry for us, church, that we lose touch of what Jesus has done for us. I worry that if we were in that room that day, we would find more common cause with Judas than we did with Mary. Don't forget, church. Don't forget what Jesus has done for you. Don't forget what Jesus is doing for you right now. Come to church on a Sunday morning. Come to worship ready for an extravagant praise. Ready to tune out. Any voice that is saying, keep it together, be respectable, don't get messy, don't get weepy, don't get shouty, push all that aside. I know the worship team's with me at least this morning. Martha and Mary and Lazarus, they show us these very practical ways that we can open ourselves up to receiving Christ's humanizing love, serving, being served, resting with Jesus, and worshiping, worshiping, worshiping. As we accept more and more of Christ's humanizing love, we will more and more reject this world's tendency to reduce anybody to an object, including ourselves. Carlton, can I invite you to come on up? How have you accepted Christ's love for you? Have you accepted Christ's love for you? Are you accepting Christ's love for you? The more you are filled with the love of Christ, the harder it will be to turn anyone into an object the harder it will be for anybody else's objectification to grab a hold of you. In a minute, we will come to the Lord's table. And at this table, you and I are are each receiving in love as the image bearers of God we are. We are welcomed to the table. No matter how we have been reduced, commodified, or objectified this week, we come to this table at God's invitation who sees us clearly and loves us fully. No matter how we ourselves have sinned against our neighbors and our God this week, the grace of Jesus welcomes us back to this table where we receive again the tangible expressions of the love of God, broken body, and poured out blood. But before I invite you to come, I, I want to give you a couple of minutes in silence to reflect on Martha's service, on Lazarus's rest, and on Mary's worship. How are these very practical ways of receiving Christ's love present in your life today? Is the Holy Spirit inviting you to more consistent service or to allowing yourself to be served? To more regular rest? To more extravagant worship? You were made to know the love of God. How might the Spirit be inviting you to experience more of God's love that you might in turn love others with the love of Christ? Will you take just the next two to three minutes to consider these three ways of receiving God's love for you? God who sees us, who knows us, and who loves us. God who names us, redeems us, and calls us. God who suffered from us, for us, and with us. We thank you for the love of God, which is ours through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Thank you for rescuing us from sin, death, and the devil. Thank you for standing between us and our accuser. Thank you for a redemption which is so comprehensive and complete that neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation could separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Mm-hmm. As we come to your table now, we confess our sin against you and one another for the ways we have treated others as less than bearers of your divine image. And we come hungry and thirsty for your saving and healing love. The love which reduces kingdoms of hatred and violence to rubble. The love which resurrects hearts reduced by oppression. Feed us of yourself today. The only food and drink which satisfy and save. In the name of Jesus we